This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The term mindfulness is one that's becoming very popular right now, and we're seeing it in several sectors. As I've mentioned before on this show, my kids have a class in mindfulness in their grade school, but we may be even seeing it in healthcare. But it's interesting because of that, because a lot of people would consider mindfulness to be kind of a key ingredient of healthcare. Dr. Ronald Epstein of the University of Rochester has written a book about this trend called Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. And he joins us on the show right now. Ron, great to have you on. Great to have you. Uh, great to be here, Dan. Thank you. Yeah. As I said at the top, a lot of people, I think, and, and this went through my mind when I started going through your book, is why hasn't mindfulness kind of been a part of uh, of the medical field for, you know, going back as long as we can think? Well, you know, it kind of has and it hasn't. Um, okay. There there are references even to the ancient Greeks that they, you know, there were, there were statements saying that a doctor needs to know him or herself through and through in order to better take, take care of patients. But, but I think that's always been a, an undercurrent in medicine because we're so focused on other people, on patients, on people who are suffering. Uh so the the idea of bringing this book forward even more so now, what was kind of the, the tipping point to do that at this point? Well, for me, it was that mindfulness and self-awareness was always part of my life from a very young age. Uh, and, and it was, but it wasn't until I'd been in practice for about 10 years that I realized that this was a fundamental and missing ingredient in medical education and medical practice, and that the public needed to hear about it. Is it, in terms of it being, as you said, a missing ingredient from the education part uh, of medicine, is it something that that a lot of these institutions are realizing now and that they are starting to incorporate at this point? I think more and more. Uh, most medical schools now in, have at least an elective opportunity for medical students to participate in some kind of mindfulness workshop or mindfulness course. And at a few medical schools, including ours, there is some required content for all students. And then as people go on through training, there are more and more opportunities for practicing physicians to learn to be more mindful, to be more attentive, to be more present. So it clearly is a wave that's, that's moving across the country. As you said before, this is something that, that has kind of been in your, in your mind for, for quite some time. Uh, and in fact, you lay out instances, I guess, when you were uh, you know, going through uh, your learning stages as a doctor of other doctors that you saw that, that made mistakes because uh, of these types of errors. Well, you know, there are kind of the big and obvious mistakes. And when I was a third-year student, I noticed a physician who basically ignored something that was completely obvious within the, the operating field, partially because it was something that was surprising. It was something that he wasn't expecting. And it reminded me many years later of that video that's gone viral where people are playing basketball and then a, a gorilla comes across the screen and, you know, half, half of people don't even see the gorilla. And so the, 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 this, this invisible gorilla in, in medicine is not only in the operating room, but it's also in the clinic. So I noticed that doctors pay attention to certain symptoms more than others, right. tend to ignore things that later seem obvious and are often keys to understanding what's going on with patients. So th this is obviously something, uh, it sounds like, that is, 
it can be a personal issue from doctor to doctor. Obviously, some are more aware of it than others. I think so. And, and it's really an ability to be aware of yourself while being aware of what's going on outside. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866 is the number to join in. As I mentioned at the top, my my kids who are 10 and 8 years old uh, actually are having a mindfulness class uh, in their school this year, which kind of caught me off guard. Is is this push to bring mindfulness forward uh, something that uh, I I would imagine it's great for you to see in general, but maybe even to a degree it catches you off guard that we're seeing it in so many different places. Yeah, my kids too. When they were they when they were in elementary school. Now, mind you, they were in somewhat of a, a, a an alternative school setting, but they they clearly had had mindfulness content. And in in increasingly in, in education, this is viewed as something important because really learning is about knowing your own mind and how your mind works and how you take in information, how you process information, what biases you have, uh, and so knowing how your own mind works helps you learn. And I would extend that to basically everything that you do in life, you know, yeah. in, in your work setting and in, in terms of relationships, knowing yourself is important. Well, and a lot of people would say that being able to deal with, you know, what would be considered to be not so normal situations, especially even if you're younger in life, will obviously help you once you get through college and you start to head out into the, into the business world. I, I think of these as habits of mindfulness. It's not that you just do mindfulness or, you know, you sit on a cushion or you do meditation or you, right. you know, take a mindful attitude, but it becomes a habit. It becomes the way that you deal with the world in general. Well, the, the research that you did in, in putting this together, you kind of had a, a very broad uh, look at this uh, from a variety of different angles. You mentioned in here about uh, experiences with, with Zen uh, in terms of understanding mindfulness better. Uh, when uh, my interest in in the mind really goes back to when I was a teenager, and uh, I uh, studied Zen Buddhism, and then eventually ended up at a uh, at a Zen center in California for a few months, which was a really formative time for me. I brought that not only the practice, now you know the the practicality of of doing lots of sitting meditation, you know, it may or may not appeal to people, but right. it was really the underlying attitudes towards one's own mind and the possibility of knowing oneself better and uh, and using that self-knowledge to be more effective in the world and to be more compassionate. There's an interesting line that you have in the book. You say, you say doctors are trained to cling to categories. Which, you know, obviously there's part of that is, you know, doctors have specialties and they follow that path. But it sounds like to a degree that that doctors themselves can be their own worst enemy of kind of cutting or holding in their thinking in terms of maybe a a potential disease that somebody has or, you know, a potential problem that may be down the line for a person. Absolutely. And and this is one of the biggest uh, problems in diagnostic errors is uh, in psychology, they call it uh, uh, they call they call it premature closure. That is, you find a set of symptoms and then you kind of grab at the first thing that seems to fit with those symptoms. And then your mind closes, even if there's disconfirming data, even if there even if things don't continue to add up. 
And I tell a couple of stories in the book that uh, that really exemplify that. I had a, this was a friend of mine who was uh, who had had. Uh, 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 bladder cancer and had a catheter put in, the catheter was removed, mm-hmm. and uh, later was found not to be urinating normally. Yeah. Went to an emergency room, it was a hot day, and the emergency room doctors thought that he must be dehydrated. Here's a relatively young, fit-looking guy who's not peeing very much. So they started an IV and gave him more and more and more fluid, not recognizing the fact that he had just had bladder surgery and there might be an obstruction. In fact, that was the case, but it took three changes of shift and about 18 hours of IV fluids before anyone mm. realized it. Are you able to determine through, through doing the research for this book and, and maybe other studies that are out there, how much of an impact we may be starting to see from not having this approach of mindfulness uh, as doctors and, and nurses and you know just the, the, the healthcare sector in general? Because I would think if, if you are making these mistakes, there is obviously an economic impact that will happen patient by patient by patient. Uh, I can't even begin to calculate what the economic impact would be, but I do know what the human impact would be for each patient if they feel that they're, they've not been understood and the treatment they're receiving is not necessarily the ideal treatment for what, for what they have. It really just takes once uh, yeah. to have, uh, have an experience like that. Now, you know, I'm a, I'm a practicing family physician, and in family medicine, probably you encounter more ambiguity than in other areas of medicine, just because mm-hmm. people can come in with with anything. Uh, and and I I'm humbled every day realizing that it's a very very inexact science that I'm that I'm practicing. It's it's a it's a human endeavor and uh, with some scientific trappings, if you will. And um, and so. Uh, but adopting that sense of not knowing and that sense of humility in in some ways is very protective because then I'm always not too sure of myself. I'm sure of myself. I'm confident. I've been in practice for a number of years, but I'm not too sure of myself so that the door to other possibilities is closed. But it has to be a bit of a challenge as, as you lay that out right there, since, as you say, this is an, an imperfect science when the people that you are treating uh, I would I would imagine that a majority of them have the expectation that they expect this to be a perfect science, especially where the doctors are concerned. Uh, I think that that is uh, your, what you're saying is absolutely true. That and when I'm a patient, I want I want things to be exact and perfect and uh, and everything to go smoothly. Yeah. But the reality is is that's that's. That's a desirable goal, but not achievable 100% of the time. I'm guessing this, uh, we're, we're talking about doctors at the, at the outset, but I'm guessing this also filters down to the other people that are, that are within the hospital structure as well. Absolutely, and it filters down to anyone who's in a high-risk profession. I mean, it would, okay. it would filter down to air traffic controllers. It would filter down to police officers in the military. Uh, anyone who has to make judgments under uncertainty. Well, part of this is also you you talk about the fact that uh, we're seeing a higher rate of doctors either get out of this or change what they are doing within the medical field because of the rate of burnout. Uh, And and that is obviously a a, a concern that the medical industry has to continue to deal with on a day-to-day basis. The degree to which uh, healthcare professionals are burned out affects the quality of care that they provide. This has been proven over the past 20 years, and it, it clearly is 
is, is a connection. So the burnout problem is not just about the well-being of clinicians, but it's really about the safety of the public. And so when you think about that, then, then having a resilient and self-aware and engaged healthcare workforce is in everybody's best interest. What's happened over the past 10 years, uh, 10 or 15 years, are, are two things. One is that healthcare has become much more productivity-oriented mm-hmm. and less of a human in- enterprise. Yep. And no one goes into medicine to be uh, working on an assembly line. People go into medicine because they like people. And they enjoy the interactions they have with people. And we're spending less and less of our time face-to-face with people and more and more of our time doing administrative tasks. Can this... And, and some of those administrative tasks re- are related directly to the computerization of uh, uh, medical records. Can this at time be a kind of a learned experience as well uh, to be able to, to a degree, change your mindset as a doctor, as a nurse, or whatever that may be, as you also alluded to, uh, air traffic control, change your mindset so that you are more aware uh, of this, and it, it obviously would make you more productive, and it would make uh, the people that you're, uh, you're involved with uh, feel better and more productive. So I see this as an individual enterprise as well as a collective one. So on an individual level, for example, I, I, I know that what I enjoy about seeing patients is face-to-face contact. So I don't even turn the computer on until the patient and I have had a couple of minutes to talk face-to-face without a computer screen. Right. Um, and, and that's a personal decision that I've made because that's what gives me satisfaction in work, and it makes a big difference for me. However, I think healthcare institutions have a huge responsibility because in the design of healthcare now, they have not taken human factors into account. They've not taken into account the degree of, to which we can assimilate information. Mm-hmm. They've not taken into account the fact that multitasking is impossible, that we alternate between tasks. We don't do two things at the same time. And they don't take into account what gives patients and physicians the most satisfaction about their uh, their visits. And it's really the same thing. It's about having real conversations. What are some of the things that you would like to see maybe incorporated even further a- a- on the education side to better prepare doctors and nurses for this? Some of these things are really, really simple. Like um, we've, you know, there are courses in communicating with patients, but there's, there, there's no education in how to prepare yourself psychologically for a potentially difficult Uh, encounter that you might have with a patient or even a routine one. So I teach medical students and residents and practicing physicians simple things like when your hand is on the door handle and about to go into the patient's room, what do you do? And you can use that as a mindful moment. You can take a breath. You can mentally set aside what's happened before with a previous patient. You can uh, practice presence. You can practice being present. And the more you do this, the more it becomes second nature, so that each time you enter a patient's room, your mind is just that much more fresh, more open, more receptive, and the patient sees that you're present, that you're really there. You also uh, spend some time talking about how these approaches can also help healthcare systems as well, which obviously is kind of important now because we're seeing a variety of healthcare systems across the country grow even more, uh, especially in the last year, adding extra pieces to their operations. Yeah, and, and some health system systems have done this mindfully and others have not. 
Okay. And, and there's tremendous variability. Some systems are really actively looking at the patient's experience and the clinician's experience of care. And other systems really are taking a production-oriented approach in which uh, physicians and other healthcare professionals are really viewed as merely widgets in a, a very large machine. What is it that, that, that doctors and, and nurses need to be aware of? Uh, because you have a chapter in the book called Healing the Healer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously, I, I think at times probably a lot of people don't think about uh, the doctors and the nurses themselves. The first step for anyone in a high-stress profession is to recognize the earliest warning signs they have that they're beginning to burn out. So for someone, it might be a headache. For someone else, it might be a sense of upset stomach. For some people, it may feel be ty- feeling tired. Some people might not sleep as well. Some people might make more typos when they're typing in the computer. And if you can recognize when you're beginning to burn out and what those signs are, then you can begin to take action before things get out of hand. So that's just one thing. Again, I'm just giving you simple tools. Yeah. To, because I think it's a collection of these simple actions that you can take during the workday that can make a difference. But if, if you get to a point like that where, as you alluded to, making more typos than, than normal and, and you start to feel it, what then is the course of action? Uh, sometimes the solutions are simple, like finding a, uh, just, just reminding yourself to slow down or finding a quieter place to work where you're less likely to be distracted or uh, taking a break. Uh, okay. Or you know, doing something to help you connect better to the work that you're doing. So it doesn't have. It, it, it doesn't, doesn't. It doesn't have to be a, a more extended pull away from that job. I mean, I mean, it could be. You know, it could be just as simple as as you know, realizing that you're at a point where you need to take a vacation or a couple of days. Absolutely, and um, or even even a mini vacation. I mean, you know, if I finish seeing patients at seven at night and I'm exhausted and beginning to see double, um, <laughs> I'll say, well, wait a second. Finishing these chart notes, I could try to do this now, and and possibly risk making some errors, or I can just leave it till till uh, early the next morning and finish them then. But the thing is, is that without that awareness. Then you keep plowing ahead and plowing ahead, and you feel worse about yourself, and the work that you do is of lower quality. So it's just that becoming aware, and I I call it turning towards, because it means that these are not pleasant feelings when you're beginning to feel burned out, but if you push them away and don't acknowledge them, it's just going to get worse. One of the things you bring up is you talk about doctors being able to practice compassion, which is, is something, again, going kind of going back to the outset of our conversation, a lot of people think, well, why aren't doctors or nurses compassionate all the time? I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to say, but, but you can see where a lot of people would ask that question. Yeah, I think I think compassion takes work. Uh, I, I mean, I, I believe that humans fundamentally have a compassionate side, but when you're dealing with uh, suffering and tragedy, sometimes it feels too much to take that in, and you yeah. create a wall. The thing that we often forget is by creating a wall, we actually need energy to create that wall, and that energy becomes exhausting. 
Uh, so it really it may seem that it's self-protective and trying to preserve yourself, yeah. but uh, but creating walls like that just make sometimes makes matters worse. Now this doesn't mean that you don't need time for yourself, that you need that you don't need space. That's important as well. Yeah. But it's the recognition that's the first thing. The second is that there are actually exercises you can do to learn to be more compassionate. Hmm. There there was a research study uh, uh, is going ongoing at Duke in which they ask people to write down every day three things for which they feel grateful and just write them down. And just the act of writing those things down helps you. It's more energizing. It makes you realize what you have and others don't and creates what are called more pro-social attitudes, uh, attitudes that are uh, concerned with the we- welfare and well-being of other people. It sounds like uh, you have had to take uh, the, the course, Doctor Heal Thyself, where this is concerned from time to time as well. We all do. Yeah, that's 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 the little secret. We yeah. all do. Uh, Ron, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for for joining us today. It's a it's a very entertaining and interesting book. Thank you very much for for giving us your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All the best. Dr. Ronald Epstein from the uh, University of Rochester. The book that he has put together is called Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. It is available in bookstores and available online right now. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.uk.